Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Through a resurrection. And he's shown this power to us on the earth that we might believe and that we might understand that a death is our way to life. And we who are Christians underwent that death in a watery grave that Rick called to our minds this morning when he said we entered into a covenant with our God and with his son Jesus Christ. For some... The way to glory may also involve the death of their physical bodies. And this has happened way, way more than we would like to imagine. Throughout the history, from the time of Christ until now, for the name of Christ, for the name of the one who came in love, not to judge, but to save, that name, many have been put to death. He brought light into the world, but the light shines in darkness. The darkness, as John prayed, does not comprehend it. It can only make sense of it when it sees God's people now living holy in this world. And so God's call to us today, the the thing that I would like to highlight for us to do is to come out of her. That's the quote from Revelation 18, to come out of her. We'll talk about who her is, but the idea is to come out. We're being invited to a great feast through the eyes of John here and those persecuted Christians of the first century. It's a wedding feast, but it's not your typical wedding feast. The table fair is not your typical table fair. In fact, it's a prelude to a great battle and a great judgment, which we will be involved in. And so there is much drama to unfold in the remaining chapters of this book. And we will look at that shortly. I want to begin by showing you a couple of uh, graphs here that are very difficult for you to see from there, I'm sure, but you can see what I need you to see. And this is the history of martyrdom. Martyrdom coming from the word testimony or testify, those who have testified that they are of the children of God that belong to Jesus Christ and have lost their lives for that confession. That martyrdom, which began with Jesus Christ himself here in the first century and moves on through our day here in the 20th century, this marking 1900 A.D., this being the, the most recent century, If you'll look at the scattering of dots on this uh, graph, you'll see that they represent martyrdoms of over 100,000 or more in an event. And the occasions in which they happen, the places and the people who were responsible for it, many of whom also claimed to be Christian, but by far not the majority. But if you just simply look at the dots and the crosses that represent over 500 and the plus signs which represent over a million in an event. 
you'll see that the bloodiest century of all has been the 20th century. This is not something we're talking about just to entertain you with some history. Most of you aren't history buffs, are you? Unless it really is pertinent. This is really pertinent. It's pertinent because not only may we somehow experience or have to go through a persecution of some level, but because we're still called to stand and confess Christ when we're asked and persuaded to deny Him. We still have to stand. We still have to know in whom we believe and decide whether or not He's able to keep that which we've committed to Him against that day, as both the Scripture and the song say. This is not pretty. This especially piques my awareness. There are some in our congregation who have experienced Christian persecution firsthand. There are some. They brought it to my attention. It's real in the world. It's real in the world. Uh, we are not always well received. The question is, is Jesus Christ the Son of God? Is it true that He rose from the dead? And if it's true, the statistics, in my mind don't affect whether or not I'm going to align myself with the truth. Whatever the consequences may be. If it's true that He's the Son of God, then He's reigning in heaven right now. And there will be a day that He said He will come and return for us, and that our name being written in the book of life on that day when we covenanted with Him should still be remaining there. He should not ever have to get out his eraser, but it does happen. It happens to those who live in such a way that they deny him and that people couldn't see him in them. And so we're called to stand just as strong as if someone was saying, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God with a gun to our head or a, a, a torch ready to light it or beasts ready to feed us to them? Or just simply to see if we'll fit in with their social circles. That's really what it, uh, our persecution amounts to most of the time. Seems kind of lame in light of this, doesn't it? Where's our boldness? Let's find it today as we walk through this book. If you're a Christian in the first century, this has become your favorite book. If you're a Christian in the 20th century that we showed here on that graph, that's probably your favorite book. And if you're a Christian who's just simply struggling with your identity as a Christian, or whether or not you believe that anything will happen in consequence to your decisions, or whether you're really allured by culture's deceitful call to come out from him and run with us, this needs to be your favorite book. We've looked at Jesus showing himself to John in the first chapter and telling John what to write so that we can understand the revelation. Christians can understand the revelation. But it's specified to the seven churches at the time, and he wrote letters to them in chapters 2 and 3. And then in chapters 4 and 5, John is called to come up here by an angel. I want to show you some things. And he sees one seated on a set throne. 
And he's holding a scroll in his right hand, but there's no one worthy, it seems, to find, to open the scroll, but one who appears as a lamb which had been slain, that is, killed, and it comes forward, being alive, and takes the scroll and begins to open its seven seals. The seals are broken in chapters 6 through 8, and the seventh seal revealed some announcements and so trumpets are, announced, uh, are, are sounded and announcements are made by angels in chapters uh, 8 through 11. Great battles are depicted throughout the book of good versus evil, basically. And that victory always belongs to the saints. And we are here in chapter 14, ready to see the angels who come, open up to chapter 14, if you would, who come out of the temple and are handed bowls full of the wrath of God Almighty. And they're going to dump them out. They're going to dump them out, picture this in your mind, from heaven upon the earth. The wrath of God is about to be poured out, not just on anywhere it falls, but specifically on some whom he will be judging at the time. We've seen who that is. In chapter 12, we're introduced to the dragon. And we're told very clearly it's Satan. It's the serpent of old, the devil, your adversary. He's the dragon. And then we're introduced to a sea beast and a land beast in the next chapter, 13. And we know these to be very clearly the current to these people in the first century. Uh, rulership of the Roman Empire and its affiliates, and we're going to see this battle really come to a head in the closing chapters, and it'll come to a conclusion too. And so the, the bowls of wrath in chapter 14 are, uh, or excuse me, uh, in chapter 14, we see the lamb standing with, with his 144,000, and they're the ones who have followed him wherever he goes, and they are going to also witness the pouring out of the bowls of wrath in chapter uh, 15 and 16. Jesus had John write down through the command of an angel in chapter 14. Write this down. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. He is not going to completely cease the persecution. In fact, this whole book is about preparing his people for the coming persecution. And he gives some details about it in upcoming verses. The angel in this chapter tells the one on the throne to thrust his sickle into the earth and reap it going to be a great judgment. In chapters 15 and 16, John sees a great and marvelous sign. Look at chapter 15. Seven angels come forth from the temple, and that's in uh, verse 6 of chapter 15. And they are given these last plagues, these bowls of the wrath of God, and when they pour them out, his wrath will be complete. He will judge the people who are persecuting his saints. The victorious saints are singing the song of Moses and the Lamb in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. 
They're singing, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. That's a key phrase for us to realize. You alone are holy, God. There's none like you. You're unique in all your ways. You're the only true God. And God, we know, turns to us and says, You be holy, for I am holy. You be unique. You be one of a kind. You be a peculiar people. You be a holy nation, a priesthood of mine, vessels to be used to do good works in this dark world. You do that. You be holy like I am holy. And they're singing about His holiness in this chapter. And then the bowls are poured out. First bowl, second bowl, third bowl, fourth bowl, fifth bowl, and they don't repent. And the sixth bowl is poured out. But the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet are only enraged together. And they are seen here calling all the kings of the earth against the Lord and calling them to the, to the battle that we have come to know perhaps as Armageddon. The battle that will be decisive as the battles that have been fought by the hill of Megiddo, Har Megadon, Armageddon, in the land of Palestine, historically known for decisive battles between empires and between Israel's tribes. It's a valley of blood. And they're calling the armies together and they're going to meet with the Lord and the Lamb and His church on this battlefield and they're going to do battle. They're enraged. But the seventh bowl is poured out. It's poured out into the air and a loud voice comes forth from the throne and says, it is done. It is done. But they blaspheme God still more. Then an angel in chapter 17 says to John, come up here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And so we're introduced to a new figure, a new illustration to understand what's going to happen here. She commits adultery with the nations and the nations with her. She sits upon a scarlet beast having seven heads and ten horns with blasphemous names written on the beast. She's arrayed in luxurious jewels and fine linens and she's holding a cup in her hand and it's filled with the blood of the martyrs, the saints who have confessed Christ as Lord. And she's drunk on that blood. She can't get enough. It's causing her to act silly and do things that are unspeakable. She has a name written on her forehead. You can read about it in verse 5 of chapter 17. In my version, it's in big bold letters. Mystery. Mystery. Babylon the Great. You have to go to the Old Testament now to read about Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And there's meaning uh, lodged deep in these mysterious, this mysterious title given to the woman. Who is she? First of all, she's the city of Rome, which we can see in verse 18 of the same chapter, who sits on seven hills. And she carries in her 
all of the ungodly characteristics of the Babylon of old that we can read about in the history and in the prophets of our Old Testaments, whose fate was sealed by the handwriting of God on the wall in Daniel chapter 5. That's where she met her doom. And likewise, this Rome and this empire will meet its doom. Who's the scarlet beast? It's Rome exercising her authority and her power to prosecute and persecute the church. She's writing this out in full fury. What about the blasphemous names on the beast? These are the arrogant claims of those who claim to be gods, namely her emperors and all of the pagan gods that were upheld and supported by the religious system of Rome. What about the seven heads of the beast? We're told that they're the city of Rome, which sits on seven hills, verse 9. And they are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and one is to come out of the abyss. Let me catch up here on my slides. I want you to see some key quotes uh, from these chapters. I'll hold this here so I don't forget to do that. The uh, seven kings, five had fallen, one is, and one is yet not. Uh, historically, at this time period, from the onset of the Caesars of Rome, there have been five kings. Augustus Caesar, who was Caesar at the time of Christ's birth. Tiberius Caesar, who was Caesar at the time of his death. And then Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. And Nero is one who introduced uh, the first extreme Christian persecution, but it was largely limited to the city of Rome and its surrounding areas. There is a king who now is. If this book is written in about 68 or 69 AD, uh, which I'm convinced that it is, just before the destruction of Jerusalem, then Vespasian would be the king who was ruling, the Caesar in power at this time. He's also the Caesar then which, who would lay siege to Jerusalem about which, Jesus, uh, about which Jesus warned and tried to prepare his people even on the way to the cross. And he is the one who, uh, will, uh, who is and uh, will be coming. And there is one not yet, and he will continue for a short time. And this is Titus. And these are spoken of uh, around verses 9 and 10 in chapter 17. It's this eighth one that we're warned about. He's the one who is bearing all the power of the beast. He's the one who resurrects the persecution of Nero. In fact, some believed him to be a, an incarnation of Nero because he picked up right where Nero left off and he instigated a worldwide persecution. And he called upon ten kings to help him in this persecution across the empire. And so now it became empire-wide. There's no safe place for Christians to dwell. And Domitian reigned from 81 A.D. to 96 A.D., 15 long years for the Christians. But... If you look carefully, and you don't read too fast, you come to verses like chapter 17, verse 14. 
These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. Jesus told Peter and His disciples, when He asked, Who do men say that I am? And they told Him some different answers. And He said, But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, very well, flesh and blood did not tell you this, but this came from my Father in heaven. You've concluded it. You've deduced it because of what you've seen. And I'm going to tell you that the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against the kingdom that I'm going to establish. Based upon the fact that I'm the Son of God and I live forever and I will rule forever, the kingdom will never be overthrown. Well, there have been many attempts since. And this is not the least of them, but they're holding on to these verses when they see that the Lamb will overcome those who attack Him. But let's pause now for a moment of preaching. I've been kind of overviewing, pulling out some things for you to consider and put into context, but this needs preached. One of the most alarming passages in the book of Revelation is found in chapter 17, verses 17 and 18. Unapologetically, Jesus tells his angel to have John write this passage. For God has put it into these kings' hearts. He has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until... The words of God are fulfilled. I don't like that passage because I always want to think that God's doing the right thing, that He's always going to sweep in and protect us from harm. I want to justify God and hear God is Himself telling us, just like we saw in an earlier chapter when the martyrs are under the altar crying out, How long, O Lord? As if to say, We know you can stop this, but you're not doing it. And he says, yet a little while longer. I'm going to allow this to go on yet a little while longer. Christians, we need to grasp that. God does not see as man sees. I like to see a hero sweeping in and protecting and saving before even a finger is laid upon the victim. I like to see that in movies. I like to see that in real life. I like to see that in the Bible. And it's happened in the Bible where God says, nope, but here he says, this must go on. This must go on for a little while yet. Only the God of heaven could look into the future and see us at such a time as this. And say, unless these people suffer to the point of death in such a way that the world takes notice the message of the gospel will be relegated to the relics of history. But this is true. And people need to see the truth of it. They need to see people convicted of its truth so they'll inquire and ask about this God of heaven. And then the angel that came flying by two chapters ago with an announcement of the everlasting gospel which is going to go into all the nations will be able to be received all across the globe. Yes, John, you prayed correctly. So many don't understand it. So many don't see it. But the message 
is present. It is powerful. And it'll prevail. But it needs propagating. I didn't mean to say peas like that. I was just, I guess that's preachy stuff. It needs propagated by us. He saw us. That's the only answer for this. He made a way for us to be saved. And our being here today, I cannot help but think, is not just directly tied to my mother or my father or my grandparents. It's not just directly tied to the history of, of the church restoration movement and all the work that was done to get us back into scriptures and, and be refreshed with, with the pure gospel. It goes all the way back to these people who said, I believe in the name of Jesus Christ to the point of death. That affected us today. Glorify God in your prayers today for these people. And now look, let's go on and take a look at chapter 18 and what unfolds here. There's a great white throne judgment. What would I do? I skipped a page here. I've learned a lot about the book, but I need notes for this. In chapter 18, Christians are called here, as I mentioned earlier in the sermon, in verse 4. Do you see it? Another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Not just any old buddy. My people. My Christians. Come out of her, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. This reminds me of how Peter wrote that hell has been prepared for the devil and his angels, and it's not intended for humans. God didn't make us to go to hell. God made us to serve him in the richness of his glory and in good works, which he created before the foundation of the world, that we should walk in them. But we need saved because we too are sinners. And if we're not saved, we'll wind up in the same place as those who reject and rebel against God. Because we'll live a life that rejects God. You see, you don't need to say, I reject God to wind up in this position of receiving these plagues. You simply need to not acknowledge that there is a God. Maybe you'll call him Mother Nature or some other such foolishness. There is no such thing as Mother Nature. There is Father God. And we need to proclaim him. We need to confess his son, the lamb, and we will be able to come out. This is a book about overcoming. Overcoming. Being called out was the call of Moses to the slaves in Egypt. It was the call of Jeremiah to the slaves of the, the, the Babylonian captivity. It's the clarion call of the Lord to his people to holiness. There is a powerful presence in every civilization to forsake the Lord. The customs are not the problem in these civilizations, nor the languages, nor the foods, or the dress, or the architecture, or the ingenuity of peoples. These things are not alone the problems. These are things, in fact, which fascinate us about the world's diversity. These are the things which cause us to want to learn about other people, which, which make us want to travel and see how other people do things. Some of it's very fascinating. 
how people survive in various places of the world. These are things that reflect the intellect and ingenuity of God in man. Now, these are not really the things that God is calling us out of, that we should dress a certain way, or that we should eat certain foods, or that we should build our buildings in a certain way and I'll just all live the same. This is not what he's calling us out of. He doesn't care whether I wear a kilt or a pair of blue jeans or eat chicken feet, as they do in some cultures, or cheeseburgers. He doesn't care about all of these things and how I, how I build and how I'm entertained. What he's calling me out of are the things that are ungodly. What he's calling me to do in word and deed is to do all things in his name and for his glory. He cares that I'm faithful to him. That's what he cares about. He cares that I'm loyal to my wife. He cares that I'm nurturing, personally, me as a father. He cares if I support the drug, alcohol, and porn industries and am silent when it comes to the unborn, the orphan, the fatherless, the widow, and the poor. He cares about that, where I stand on those things. He cares if I'm more passionate about the ball game than I am about the mission of God to save men from their sin. He cares about that. He cares if I'm resting my hope in him or in a political party or a figure to save us from all this. The lamb is the victor here. The saints are the conquerors here. The church are the warriors here in this book and in our day. And we must spend our time and energy. We must spend ourselves fighting for things that matter and seek the approval of Christ and not the heathen world. Voices come out of heaven in chapter 19. Alleluia! 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 Three times. Praise Yah, it means. Praise Yahweh, Jehovah, God. Why? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready, as Mike read in our scripture reading this morning. Verse 7. She was wearing white for the righteous acts of the saints, other texts call upon marriage celebration to illustrate something in the New Testament. In Matthew 22, Jesus focuses on the invitees when he talks about a wedding. In John 3, John focuses on the groom Jesus and him being like the best man. In Luke 12, the servants who wait on the master of the feast are to uh, of the feast to return is the subject. Here in Revelation 19, the focus of the feast is the joy of Jesus, the groom, rejoicing in his church, the bride. That is the subject actually for the remainder of the book. And blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The heavens are open, verse 11, and Christ is seen on a white horse, clothed in a robe dipped in blood with the inscription, King of Kings and Lord of Lords on it. His name is called the Word of God, and His armies are following Him on white horses. Hey, wouldn't that be fun? Maybe someday we'll get to ride a white horse too. Then the angel invites the birds to the supper. Okay, this is where it gets weird. What's for, what's for dinner at this wedding feast, Lord? Call the birds of the air. They're going to come too. They're depicted here in a post-battlefield scene eating the flesh of kings captains, mighty men, horses and their riders, and the rest of mankind who were not invited to the wedding party. Kind of gross, isn't it? 
Now the battle of Armageddon begins. Remember, they were called together, but nothing happened. Now the battle of Armageddon begins. The beast and the kings of the earth are still enraged. They're gathered together to make war against the Lord and his army. We've already seen sneak peeks of who wins. Spoiler alerts. But the beast and the false prophet here are now captured and cast alive into the lake of fire. The rest were killed by the words which come out of the mouth of Jesus, that sharp two-edged sword, that when he speaks to judge, his word does not return to him void. There will be judgment. And they're all slain who are not at the wedding party. And the wedding party are those also who are the victors. And the birds were filled. That's a gruesome chapter. But I want to remind you who's reading this first. I want to remind you of the bloodshed that they've seen. And the innocence that's, that's being uh, raped and violated before their very eyes. Or will be shortly on a, on a regular basis. When they see these people getting theirs. And they're not the ones called to do it. The Lord God is going to do it. Oh, there's rejoicing in heaven over this. And in chapter 20, we see a great white throne. An angel comes down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit. And a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon and bound him for a thousand years. Then John saw thrones, and they sat on them. They sat on them. Who's they sitting on them? Those who Jesus promised would rule with him and reign with him and sit on 12 thrones judging. They sat with them, on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then he saw the souls of those beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image. These martyrs are part of the first resurrection and have power over the second death. What good news that would be. Satan will rally all the nations against God, as described back in chapter 16, at the hill of Megiddo, at Armageddon. And they'll encompass the camp of the saints and the beloved city as to crush them. But church, here's what happens. The battle of Armageddon's going to happen. We turn on the TV, we get on the internet, we see that it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen over here in Israel, and all this stuff's going to happen. It never happens. It never happens in Scripture. Such a thing is not going to happen on the earth. Because as all of the nations are surrounding the camp of the saints and they're ready to crush them, and they are defeating and crushing them, here now is the time where our God brings fire down from heaven and consumes them. The battle is over, verses 7 through 9. Again, the devil who deceived them was defeated, cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet also are. This time, forever and ever, the battle is over concerning what is written in this book. Then John sees a great white throne and him who sat on it. And the dead from chapters 19 and 20 are standing before God. Yes, those who have been slain, for the testimony of the blood of the Lamb, and those who were not invited to the wedding feast, all the rest of the earth who were slain. They're all standing now, resurrected before God. And books are opened. And another book, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Just as Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 48. When he said, 
He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The words that I speak will judge him in the last day. No punches pulled here. Jesus then, when he came, said, these are the words, and now the books are open. Maybe this is referring to the 27 books of the New Testament, 26 plus this one being written. But books, the revelation of God up to this time, and the book of life is opened. Is your name there? Then death and Hades, thank God. Praise God, we're cast also into the lake of fire. Do you see this ultimate destruction of all these things? The saints are seeing it in visions of glory here through John. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire with the beast and the dragon. That's someplace you do not want to be. So we move on to chapters 21 and 22, and we see all things made new. All things made new. After all this judgment, death, destruction... All these things that are hard to read, but remember, for these people, they're living it. Now things are becoming new. Corruption free. Corruption free. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound good? First, a new heaven and a new earth, verse 1. The first ones had passed away, and now John sees the holy city, New Jerusalem. Jerusalem had, had been trampled underfoot by one of the beasts in an earlier chapter. It's been destroyed by, by Vespasian by the time these things are all coming to pass. Now a new Jerusalem has new meaning to the Jews. A new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. But this isn't just a material city. This is also the bride. This is the bride. This is the dwelling place of the saints with their Lord and Master. This is the wedding coming together between the Lamb and His people that's going to happen in this chapter. The angel shows John the bride. An announcement is made. Behold, I make all things new, right, for these things are true and faithful. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I'll give water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. Right, Rick? We will have an everlasting covenant as you spoke about earlier. The description looks something like this. A new Jerusalem holy and filled with the glory of God. Earlier chapter showed the temple of God being filled with His wrath. Now we see His glory filling the temple and He being the temple. And a pure light emanates from her. No sun, no moon. The glory of God and the Lamb are its light in this city. And those who live and walk in its light are the saved, listen closely, of every nation. What a beautiful thing. The saved of every nation. Those who are worshiping this Lord's Day across the globe, communing in covenant with Him, hearing the words that He's speaking and living by them and committing their lives so that these people are going to be there in this well-lit and glorious city. The curse is lifted in chapter 22, in verse 3. The curse is lifted. What curse? The curse of man 
in sin bringing death upon him. It's lifted because death will be destroyed by the Lamb. And man will dwell in a garden-like harmony with their God. They will see his face. And John wrote about this when he said how glorious it was to be, be called children of God. We do not yet see him, but when he comes, we will see him as he is, 1 John chapter 3. And here Jesus is saying, you'll see him all right. Those who do his commandments will have access through the gates of the city and to the tree of life. What tree of life? That tree that was forbidden for them to enter back into in the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis. But outside are those who haven't been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. An invitation from the Spirit and the bride is given in this short closing chapter, chapter 22, to all the readers of the seven churches first. Listen, we sing about this. Come and let him who hears, that is, hears with agreement and understanding and is planning on coming, let him say, come. Let him who would be in our position, who are invited to come, turn to those who are not coming. You following? And say, come. Come. We sing, won't you come? The invitation of the marriage supper and the, and the lamb and his bride is offered then the desired response is spelled out for the reader. Whoever thirsts will be able to take the water of life freely. And finally, we come with a warning. Don't mess with this prophecy. Don't anybody get anything out of your purse to erase what's written in this thing. This is going to come to pass. It's so urgent that people need this to be exact and read it just as I have had John write it. Don't mess with this. Don't add to it or take away from it. It's a capital offense. And John closes personally by he himself saying in verse 20, he who testifies of these things says, surely I am coming quickly. And he, John says, amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So there's an outstanding invitation from us to the Lord to come, to come. I have very mixed emotions about this. I want him to come today. But when I look around at some of my loved ones and neighbors and people I care about and they're not ready, they're not coming to the feast, I want him to hold off for a day or two. I want him to hold off for a week or a month. But I'll tell you what I have to do. When that month is up and that year is up, that I've asked the Lord, please not yet give them more time, I better be saying, come. Come to this feast. The water of life is flowing freely from this God who created all things for you to drink. And there is a day coming in which no man can work, in which no man can revert, in which no man can justify himself. But he'll have to be justified by the blood of the Lamb and by the testimony that he has made. I want to invite you to come if you haven't yet to be with Christ where He is, to live with Him starting now, to be able to converse with Him, to be able to enjoy the rich blessings that He is giving to us, to be able to see and have hope that He's given us 
Won't you come? I'm going to put a slide on the screen just as something for you to consider also when we step down and sing this song. And I want you to see how God has worked from beginning to end that this invitation is no small thing. It's his work in history for us to be saved. Won't you come? Let's stand and sing. <clears throat>